Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Obsessive compulsive disorder is often missed or just misunderstood. What is OCD and what isn't it? How does it differ from really anxious thoughts and how is it treated? While it can show up at any point in life, some kids commonly show signs around age seven, especially when there's a family history. Lynn explains the connection with anxiety and how it differs, but most importantly, how to manage it and what signs to look for. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about worry and other big feelings in parenting. I'm your co-host, Robin. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a fluster clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. Let's talk about OCD. Obsessive compulsive disorder is not uncommon, and it actually can show up pretty early on in a child's life. Now, a few things we know about OCD. It's got a genetic component to it. It's got a strong genetic push, probably the strongest genetic push of most of the anxiety disorders. OCD used to be considered in the classification of things an anxiety disorder. It sort of got moved out into its own room at the hotel, which it was fine with. And we know that it runs in families. We know that if it shows up early. What is early? The average age, if it shows up early, it's about age seven. It can show up earlier than that, but that's the average age of onset when you begin to notice it and you begin to see it. Although it can show up at age four, age five, age six, there's some differentiation between early onset OCD and adult onset OCD. And there's all sorts of literature about that. And of course, there's debate about that. And is it something different? And OCD can show up later in life. Sometimes it's connected to a trauma or to a set of life experiences in which you're trying to do things in order to feel like you're more in control of your life. Almost always when there's early onset OCD with a little kid, it's in the family. Oftentimes a parent will come in and say, you know, I struggled with it or my sister struggled with it when she was little, and now I'm seeing it in my son. Grandparents, for sure, will see that family transmission of it. Is there a scenario where a parent says, I used to do this too, but I don't do it, but I'm seeing my kid do it now? But that's not really modeling if the parent's claiming they no longer do that behavior. Yeah, that's pretty unusual. This will be a typical scenario. So a parent will come in and say, I remember I did this as a kid, but then as I got older, I didn't do it very much. I still have those tendencies, or my father or my brother in my family, they really have some pretty bad OCD. We see that genetic part of it. The thing about OCD when you think about it is we know it has a genetic push, so it can show up if it shows up early, like at age six or seven or eight. 
you know, we're going to look in the family tree and find it. But, 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 if a parent is on top of it, if a parent recognizes that this thing is showing up early, they really can help, perhaps not eliminate it, but certainly help their child understand it and manage it so that it doesn't become so powerful and overtake a child's life. So we do know that if we can get in there and if parents can get some good coaching and get some good treatment, that they really can help with the severity of it. That said, this thing can be a little tricky and sometimes it shows up and it is really already got some traction. Seemingly out of the blue, sometimes I'll look at the family history and I'll see that, oh, maybe this child was beginning to show some of the symptoms or some of the behaviors early on and that it really flourished. It varies in severity, just like many other things. And sometimes this thing shows up and it is just a full-blown OCD and the parents are like, oh my gosh, we have no idea what to do. And that's when you really need to get help as quickly as possible. So let's talk about what it is and what it isn't. Mm -hmm. How often do parents have OCD and not even realize it themselves? Let me just tell you what OCD is. OCD, O stands for the obsession, C stands for the compulsion, D stands for disorder. I'm very clear when I'm working with families and teaching them about this, I use this language. And even though I'm not so big into diagnostic categories, like, you know, I don't say, oh, you have separation anxiety and generalized anxiety disorder. And with OCD, I am very clear about it because it can be so weird and confusing to kids and families that I just want them to know that I know exactly what's going on. You have some sort of thought. Sometimes it feels very clear, the thought. Sometimes it's just sort of, oh, something doesn't feel right, but you have some sort of thought that is disturbing to you. And that's an important part of it, is that the thought that comes up doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. It can feel intrusive. Sometimes when people have these obsessions and have these thoughts, they're very bizarre or they're very disturbing in terms of something I might do. And so then the compulsion is the thing that you do the action you take to sort of cancel or negate or get rid of the obsessive thought. So the easiest way to think about it is that it's like the human brain's desire for superstition and ritual. So you have this thought that, oh my gosh, if I wear my lucky socks, then we'll win the football game. Or my friends who during a football game, if their team, which was the Patriots, was losing at halftime, then everybody had to go and change their clothes and come back wearing a different outfit for the second half, right? Human beings like that idea that if there's something happening that doesn't feel good and I do something differently. So that superstition, you know, I'm going to throw salt over my shoulder or I'm going to make sure that I sing a certain song. If you think about a lot of rituals in culture that we do certain things to prevent certain things from happening or to make certain things happen. So that's a normal thing. OCD is that process really kind of gone awry. So you have this thought that shows up that, oh my gosh, what if I get cancer? Or what if I left the stove on? Or what if I make a mistake? Or what if nobody likes me? Or what if I choke? Or what if this food is poison? And then you do something to try and feel better or negate that thought. 
So there has to be an obsession. There has to be that disturbing thought. And then there has to be some sort of compulsion that you do in order to make yourself feel better. The problem is the obsessions show up and then you do the compulsion. The more that you do that process, the more that you compulse in order to feel better about the obsession, the stronger it gets. So you get caught up in this pattern of trying to do these compulsions more and more and more in order to prevent the obsessive thought from feeling so controlling and feeling so uncomfortable. So that's what OCD is. Wow. I didn't have a full understanding of it. I had one friend, you know, in college Mm -hmm. who told me he had it. And now I, I don't even know if he was diagnosed correctly. Yeah. From what I'm, what I now know. Yeah. Because he always said, I have the O, but not the C. Oh, Mm-hmm. Well, and that can be, there are people who are what are called purely obsessionals. But now in hindsight, it sounds like he was simply an anxious ruminator. Yeah, right. The thing about OCD is that it feels very intrusive. And so when you talk to somebody who has OCD, they don't like these thoughts. They feel very afraid of these thoughts. The, the whole experience is really unpleasant. And so there are people who, yeah, you're right, anxiously ruminate. They think, oh, what if, what if, what if they catastrophize for it to be true OCD, then you have to do this thing that then tries to negate the obsessional thought. The other thing about OCD is that it doesn't always make sense. And people sort of think that if you have an obsessional thought like, oh, I can't, I can't make a mistake. So then I'm going to do a compulsion and I'm going to check something. And I'm going to check it and make sure I didn't make a mistake. So that's OCD perfectionism. But sometimes the obsessional thought that you have and then the compulsion that you do have no connection to each other. And it's weird stuff. Like I had a boy come into my office and he told himself, his OCD said that if he stepped on the color red, that he would lose all his friends. Right? So you're like, what? So he had to avoid stepping on the color red because if he did that, then all his friends would go away. Now that makes no sense. I have other kids that come into my office and then it sort of does make sense. Like if I don't shut my door to my bedroom, then somebody's going to go into my bedroom and ruin all of my things. Now you think, okay, so that's kind of a normal thought if you had little siblings that were going to go in and wreck your stuff. But the person has to go back and check that their door is closed 20 times before they leave the house. I had another guy who really worried that he was going to burn the house down by leaving things unplugged. So every time he left the house, he had to go around and unplug everything. Although he didn't unplug his refrigerator because he didn't want to ruin all his food. So he, that was the one exception he made. But he had to unplug everything in his house before he left because he was so worried, what if I don't unplug something and then my house burns down? So sometimes you can see a connection between the obsession and the compulsion. And sometimes you're like, okay, the brain just sort of made that up, which is a lot of superstitions that human beings do. You think like, well, you know, throwing salt over your shoulder isn't really going to give you good luck. There's probably some history to that. It doesn't matter. That's the thing about OCD is that it doesn't matter what the content is. And you know, we've talked a lot about content versus process. 
the content of the OCD is meaningless. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have some sort of psychodynamic meaning. It isn't indicative of your relationships. It doesn't mean that you want to do this thing. It doesn't mean that you're secretly harboring these ideas or fears. It's not some unconscious thing that's going on inside of you. It comes up with weird, weird stuff, all sorts of weird stuff. Have you ever wished you could work with Lynn to talk about your family? Here's your chance. We're excited to announce the second Fluster Clucks Parenting Retreat at Canyon Ranch in the Berkshires. This two-night retreat will feature small group workshops with me and Lynn, a private consultation with Lynn, and all of the amenities of Canyon Ranch, a luxury wellness destination. It's not just a spa. It's so much fun. So much fun. Everything that I teach is really about emotional management, handling worry when it shows up, but it is so focused on prevention. These are skills that every family needs to know so that we can get ahead of this thing and you can have wonderful joy and connection with your kids. Join us October 22nd through 24th. And there's a link in the show notes and on flusterclocks.com. Let's talk about what it isn't. A friend of mine recently had a pretty bad scare with her son who mm-hmm. kind of went into a seizure for the first mm-hmm. time. And as she was describing it and they were in the car and it it just sounded like a, a horrible thing to endure as the child, but also as the parent. Of course. Yeah. And most parents have, we you call the, the near miss or like the the tragic thing, like when when something bad has happened to one of our kids or something else, there's like a moment where the worst did happen or the worst almost happened. Mm-hmm. To the, Those are not pleasant thoughts. Right. I had one myself. It went away. But there was this period after a near miss with, with one of my kids, mm-hmm. that image stayed with me for a bit. I don't think about it now. But it took a while for it to not come in. Yeah, same with me. So that's kind of normal versus... OCD. Yeah. And as I said, sometimes it's the result of trauma. And that would be an example of that. So you go through a trauma or a, you know, I call it the close call file, which all of our, we have as parents. And then it feels intrusive. So the, the thought about the trauma, the near miss or the actual trauma, if it did really happen, is very intrusive. It keeps showing up. That's a thing that happens post traumatically. And then how it can become sort of an OCD process is that then you want to do something to prevent that from happening. Say, for example, you're with your three-year-old and your three-year-old starts to choke on a grape and you're able to smack his back or give him a, you know, give him a little Heimlich or whatever, and you solve it. You prevent the bad thing from happening then you may become kind of obsessive and compulsive about what foods he can eat and when you allow him to eat. So sometimes post a trauma or that kind of thing, it shows up and it can grab on. Sometimes I talk to adults who have had very abusive childhoods and they came up with rituals or things that they did in their head to prevent bad things from happening to them you know, the psychological thing that they did in their head that if I do this, then my dad won't beat my mom. Or if I do this, then my mom will come home. Or if I do this, those are other ways that it can show up for sure. So there's this OCD that clearly shows up 
in this genetic sort of predisposed way, right? So this kid starts doing these rituals early on and you see them be doing repetitive behaviors and compulsive behaviors. And then there's this other way that it can show up where you really can sort of look back and track it to trauma. But if you're treating OCD and I treat OCD, that shows up sometimes, but it's much more likely that in my office, I have families coming in where there's a history of OCD and it really is this disorder that's sort of been running in the family. From what you describe, it, it's our brain creating unusual coping strategies. Right. Particularly if you're talking about some situation where somebody has had a trauma and then they're trying to prevent the trauma from happening again, that makes sense, right? So that's over in a little bit of a different category. And we would explain that to somebody and say, of course, this is how this developed. On the other hand, sometimes it is just whack-a-doodle-doo stuff that our brain comes up with. Like what? Well, the one I told you about, about stepping on red and losing all your friends. Intrusive thoughts that people have, because you'll have a thought that you might do something or that you did do something. And then you have to do a compulsion to get you out of that. For example, and this is not an unusual one, actually, a fear that you hit somebody with your car while you were driving, that you ran over somebody. So then you have to go back and check and make sure that you didn't run over the, anybody. Remember that anxiety is always seeking certainty, and OCD is the ultimate doubt factory. So it brings up this doubt. So you're driving to work, and you have this thought, did I just, did I run over somebody with my car? Now, rationally, you would say, well, gosh, if I hit somebody with my car, I would have noticed, wouldn't I? I would have felt that. I would have seen it. But the OCD says, are you sure? Are you sure that you didn't do it? So then you have to go back and check. So you go back and you check. You retrace your route. And there's, no, there's nobody that you hit with your car. And then the OCD says, well, what if the person was injured and they crawled into the grass and you didn't see them? You better go back and check again. And so people will get caught in this process of constantly worrying that they might have hit somebody with their car and that they have to go back and check. So then what do they do? They don't drive the car because they're going to avoid driving the car. But when we talk about the content doesn't matter, here's the mistake that you could make if you're, if you're somebody who's treating this or if you're getting treatment for this. If you begin to treat that content as rational, and if you say to somebody who's got this OCD obsession compulsion, you know what? If you ran over somebody with your car, you would notice that. I even had somebody recommend, which I didn't agree with this treatment, is to go to a parking lot put a gallon of milk in the parking lot, and then drive over it with your car so that you can recognize, even if you go over a gallon of milk, you'll notice that, right? That doesn't work because you're treating the content as if it's meaningful. You're treating the thought as if it's rational, and you're trying to create certainty in order to get rid of the OCD pattern. What we have to do is we have to say, the only reason I'm having that thought is because I have OCD. That's it. This is a brain fart. This is my brain doing something weird. And sometimes it can make a little bit of sense. And I had one boy who said, those are tidbit of truth. So even if you say, well, you could burn down your house, there could be an electrical problem in your house. That does happen. So unplugging everything, that makes a little bit of sense. So that would be called tidbit of truth. And then the other thing he said, or it's total cray cray 
which is if I step on red, then I'll lose all my friends. Total cray cray. You know, sometimes people wait until something bad happens to talk to a therapist, but why wait? Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and feel grounded in your personal relationships. So getting started is the important part. Talkspace makes it easy and affordable. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home, your car, your office. There's no need to commute to appointments and miss time at work or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. That's right. And it's secure and private. They use the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information, complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Remember, Talkspace is affordable and it's in-network with most major insurers. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with your licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free apple that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. What we want to do with the with treatment is to help identify that this is a pattern and that we have to interrupt the pattern. And talking about the content, trying to create certainty, trying to understand why you're having those compulsions, all of that actually makes the problem worse. That was, yeah, that was a great analogy. Let's talk about the seven-year-old though. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some seven-year-old examples so that it's easy to understand how a child might show these patterns. Mm -hmm. So the seven-year-old says, before I go to bed at night, I need to do this ritual. 
and I have to have this certain thing in place. A lot of times it has to do with how many times, a common thing, how many times mom or dad says, I love you, and you say, I love you back. It has to do with certain foods that they have to eat in a certain order. You might start to see perfectionism showing up so that they have to have things a certain way. You might see contamination things show up because that's a pretty common way that OCD shows up. So they won't touch certain things. They won't eat certain things. Um, They start worrying that they are going to get poisoned. They have a fear, a thought, what if you eat that and it's poisoned? We'll see all of that in seven-year-olds. Sometimes the behavior and sometimes the thoughts and the obsessions are really bizarre and scary. And this is when kids have intrusive thought OCD, which is just OCD, but it's the intrusive thoughts that they're going to hurt somebody, that they did hurt somebody. So a little child might say something really disturbing to a parent, like, I'm worried that I might stab you. I'm worried that I might hurt the cat. I'm worried that I might push somebody down the stairs. And parents, when they hear those words come out of their little child's mouth, they panic, of course, because they worry there's something, oh my gosh, my child is a sociopath or my child wants to hurt somebody. What you should pay attention to is that these thoughts create a lot of disturbance in the child. And they're confessing to you about them because oftentimes confessing becomes the compulsion. So a child comes home from school and they may be in first grade, second grade, third grade, and they say to their mom or to their dad, I think I cheated today. And the mom says, you cheated? What do you mean you cheated? I think when I walked past Sammy's paper, I looked at the answer. And the mom says, well, did you look at the answer or not? I think I might have. Or, mommy, I think today I told a lie, so I need to go through my whole day with you so that you can tell me whether or not I told a lie. So the compulsion becomes the confession. The confession becomes the compulsion. That's how we often see it showing up in little kids. Hmm. Yeah. And it's pretty scary and it's pretty dramatic. A lot of people don't understand this, not that they should, but they don't know this. And so they go down the wrong path. Schools go down the wrong path all the time with this thing. And a lot of parents are freaking out because their kids may be saying something or doing something. So they go to the pediatrician, they talk to somebody who doesn't really know about OCD, and everybody gets really freaked out about the content when it's really this OCD process. It's intrusive thinking. And the content really is not indicative of anything. It's just what the OCD grabbed onto. It's such an interesting conversation. This is a really complicated Mm -hmm. mental illness. It's a complicated mental illness, but it is really, once you know it, once you work with it for a while. It's easy to see. It's easy to see because the pattern is always the same. What throws people off the scent is that the content can be so bizarre. People coming into my office and saying, my kid has OCD, and I say it's not OCD, that very, very rarely happens. It's much more the other way, is that they come in and say, my child is really worried about this or worried about that, or something very bizarre is happening in my child's brain, and I'm worried that he's a whatever. 
And then I say, oh, no, that's OCD. I see. Very rarely does it happen that somebody comes in and says, oh, my child has OCD and it's not OCD. But what does happen, and you hear this sort of in the world out there in media, is that people say, oh, I'm so neat, I must have OCD. I like to have everything a certain way, so I must have OCD. OCD is incredibly intrusive and controlling, and it impacts people's lives in pretty significant ways. If you just like to have your house neat, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're OCD. But as one father that I treated had, he couldn't leave his work and then go to an activity with his children unless he went home to make sure that the house was perfect. And so he would miss out on a lot of things. Like his son would have a baseball game after, after work. He couldn't go straight to the baseball game. He had to go home and make sure that the house was perfect. I had another woman tell me that growing up, her dad had OCD. She had OCD too. That's why she was coming to see me. But he would wake everybody up at midnight if all the light switches weren't in the proper place, if the house wasn't perfect. So when people say, oh my gosh, I'm so OCD. I can't go to sleep at night unless the kitchen is clean. I'm so OCD. Sometimes that's a little bit inaccurate. It's pretty controlling. The other thing about OCD in our culture is that it gets rewarded all the time. How? If you get perfect grades, so perfectionism gets rewarded. I'll tell you a little story. So when I first moved to Concord, I was trying to make friends. You know, I had little kids and you're making new friends. So, so I met this really lovely, nice woman and she had little kids. I think she had like four or five little kids. And she was telling me that her house had to be perfect all the time. Like, And people would say like, oh my gosh, whenever you go over to Melissa's house, it's like the real estate agent is coming to show it. It's so everything is in place. I mean, I don't know how she does it with these little kids. And I was like, oh God, you know, I had two little kids. My house is a disaster and my kids are eating food off the floor and blah, blah, blah. So I asked her, like, we were all just jealous of how, oh, oh my gosh, she's so amazing. She's always got, you know, her house always looks so perfect. So one day I asked her, how do you keep your house perfect? And she described to me how awful it was for her to get through the day with little kids, keeping up with their messes. She said, I never get down on the floor and play with them. I am constantly yelling at them. I don't let them do certain things in the house. You say that you let your kids make cookies. I would never do that. I would never let them paint in the house. They're allowed to take out one toy at a time and that it has to be perfectly put away before they take out another toy. So on the surface, we are all like, oh my gosh, she's a super mom. But on the inside, she was held hostage by this thing. And I hear stories like that all the time. And then, so then when we look at how is it modeled by parents, right? So if you have this predisposition, because remember, genetic predisposition doesn't mean genetic done deal. If you have this predisposition and you are showing your kids how to be compulsive, if you are showing your kids how to obsessively worry and then need to do something in order to make that worry less, you're showing them how to OCD. Can you clarify in the example of the woman who keeps her house perfect? Mm -hmm. So that's perfectionism. Mm -hmm. So explain how perfectionism fits into this because it sounds like there needs to be an unspoken, irrational element to that equation to mm -hmm. make her perfectionism OCD. 
Like she's working that hard to clean that house in order to blank. In order to prevent the horrible thing that will happen if her house isn't perfect. So there always has to be a very big fear or distress. It can be that you worry that something bad will happen. Like if I don't unplug all the cords, then my house will be burned down. But it also is an internal feeling that feels unbearable to you if something is out of place. And it's not a little feeling, it's a big feeling that you cannot tolerate when the obsessive thought comes up and says, is my house clean? If a thought comes up to me that says, is my house clean? Right? Like, I wish it was clean. Right now, we were just talking about our lawn is always a disaster. Is this clean enough? Is this good enough? I'll be like, oh God, I, I wish my office was more organized. But if you have OCD, when that thought comes up, it becomes absolutely prominent in your brain. And you. the reason we call it obsessive is that you can't get past it unless you do the thing you need to do in order to make it okay. And then after you do the thing that you need to do, like make sure your house is perfect, the thought just comes right back. Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? That's how it becomes so repetitive. That level of perfectionism is really often OCD. I guess you can be perfectionistic and not have OCD, but not very often, right? If it's that level, it's just unrelenting. So say there's somebody who really likes to quilt and they want their quilts to look great, right? So they'll pay attention and if they make a mistake, they'll fix it and they'll, they really want the product to be as lovely as possible. And if there's a stitch that's out of place or there's something, you know, they'll fix it so that they can have this lovely end product. But if you are a quilter who has OCD, you will rip things out. You will do it over and over and over again. When you look at it, you will worry that you made a mistake that you missed and you'll never be able to let it go. You'll never be able to to be satisfied with it because OCD doesn't let you feel satisfied. You've never done enough, according to the OCD, if you have OCD perfectionism. I was raised by a woman who had to have a clean house. So my wheels are spinning right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that's, I think, the key right there is that if you have OCD, the house is never clean enough. Right. If you don't have OCD, the house can get ready for company. Yeah. Like you're like, okay, the house is ready now. You go, oh, okay, it looks great. Now I can have people over. Okay, phew. Yeah, phew. <laughs> if, you have, if you have OCD, it's constantly in your head and you're constantly worrying. The obsessional thought is there. An important component of it is that if you don't respond to the obsession, if you don't deal with it, something bad will happen. You feel inside something bad will happen. There will be a consequence. And that's what drives the compulsive behavior is you're trying to prevent a bad thing from happening. So if your mom cleaned her house and then she was like, oh my gosh, my house looks great. Company's coming over. She's not at her job doing her job in, in her head thinking, oh, did I leave something? Is my house not perfect? Do I have to go home? I better go home between appointments because I can't remember whether or not I straightened the pillows on my bed. It's just, it's, it's constantly there. Yeah. Right. And people can do it about anything. That's the thing about OCD is that it's not just about neatness. It's not just about germs. It can be about relationships. Did I pick the right person? 
Did I make the right choice? It makes it incredibly difficult to make decisions because remember, it's a doubt factory. You can be OCD with physical symptoms so that you're constantly worried that this thing you have is wrong with you. You go over it and over it and over it. You're constantly seeking reassurance. You're going to doctor after doctor after doctor. And you can never close the loop. You can never close the gap that's demanded by the OCD. It's always there. It's still different from typical anxiety. Yeah. The way that it's differentiated is that there has to be that pattern of here's the obsessive thought and then here's the compulsion. So I have to do something. And again, the two things might be connected, but also the compulsion cannot be seemingly connected at all. And that's where it feels like superstition. Yeah. Right. Because it sounds like the person is constantly seeking reassurance that is unobtainable. Correct. And constantly worrying that something bad is going to happen. Well, see, because what happens is it grabs onto the things developmentally that are important to you oftentimes. So when kids have OCD, the content correlates with what they're learning about developmentally. You know, we've talked about that with worry too, right? When kids learn about death, worriers worry about death. If you hear that your friend got bit by a dog, you might then start worrying about dogs. And what happens with OCD too is that it grabs on to what you learn about developmentally. And then in that way, then a very common thing when kids have OCD is that they're worried that they're going to do something that they heard about. So kids hear that people do drugs. So now they're worried that maybe they're going to do drugs. What if I did drugs? What if I started using heroin? Very common with kids who have OCD that when they start hearing about suicide, what if I hurt myself? How do people make that decision? What if I had that urge? What if I committed suicide? When they hear about crimes that people do, mommy, what if I went into a store and stole something? Do you think I stole something? It's sort of along the lines of, did I cheat? Did I lie? And it really just grabs on to this sort of, what if I were to do this thing? And then the way that they try the compulsion with this intrusive thought, they try and get rid of that by confessing and by seeking reassurance. So you say, mommy, what if I did drugs? And then the parent says, well, you're not going to do that, or you don't have to worry about that because you're only eight. Or if the child is 12 and says, mom, what if I hurt myself? What if I wanted to kill myself? And then the parent goes, oh my God, are you feeling suicidal? When we can separate that out and recognize that as intrusive thinking, then we can begin to look at the pattern. I will tell you that there are a lot of parents, as weird as this sounds, that are very relieved when I can explain to them what's going on because their kid is saying or thinking or expressing some pretty weird stuff and sometimes some pretty scary stuff. And once I can look at it and see what the pattern is, I go, oh, here we go. And then I can say to the family, do you think you have any of this going on in your family? And oftentimes, you know, the parents will say, well, I sort of do that or my brother sort of does that. There's oftentimes a real sense of relief that all of this bizarreness is really based in OCD. It's missed a lot and it's misdiagnosed a lot. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. 
Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if parents are listening to this and they feel like this actually is clicking for them Mm -hmm. with some stuff going on in their family, Mm -hmm. what's the next step? The next step is to learn about it, to get some information about it. There's a really good website. The International OCD Foundation has a website. It's iocdf.org, and they have a lot of information about it to seek out somebody who knows about OCD and to talk to somebody who knows about OCD. Because I will tell you that there are a lot of people who work with kids. There are a lot of people in schools. There are a lot of physicians, et cetera, that just don't know how differently this thing can manifest. And so they get the wrong advice. Little kids are diagnosed oftentimes with ADHD because it's just like with anxiety. I've talked about this before. It's identified as a focus and attention problem. And if you are in your head obsessing and trying to figure out how you're going to compulse to get rid of this, this obsessive thought, it is really hard to pay attention in school. It is really hard to stay in your seat. It's really hard to listen to what the teacher is saying. So a lot of kids get identified as having attention and focus issues when they have OCD, when the OCD first starts to show up. Hmm. Yep. And then when you have families that you're treating, how similar is the externalization approach? Because obviously with anxious families, you equip them to talk back to anxiety as it's mm-hmm. happening, to distance from the anxious mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. Is it the same where you, you say like that's your doubt factory? It's incredibly similar. It's really very, very important that we externalize it because I want to do the education with the family. I want them to know exactly how this thing works. I want to demystify it. I want to say it's got such a predictable pattern. I want to really, really get them out of the content because when we try and figure out what is this about, that is not so helpful. In, In fact, it's problematic. And then we want to externalize it so they can absolutely recognize 
that this is their OCD. So sometimes the entirety of the intervention is me saying, when those thoughts pop up, you need to turn to the OCD and say, the only reason I'm having that thought is because I have OCD. And then there's something called exposure and response prevention. That's just a fancy name for saying, we're going to step into the situations where those obsessions occur, and then we're not going to compulse. So the goal is to interrupt the obsessive compulsive cycle. So here comes the thought, right? Oh, that's my OCD. I'm not going to do what my OCD demands that I do. I'm going to interrupt that pattern. So if you feel like you have to go back and check something, that thought's going to pop up. Did you leave the stove on? And then you're not going to go back and repeatedly check it. You're going to interrupt it. That causes a real surge of anxiety when you don't check it at first, when you don't engage in the behavior then you, woo, that feels uncomfortable. But then, as one kid said, I feel anxious for three minutes and then I feel awesome because I didn't do it. And we want to do exposure. We want to step into those situations rather than avoid them, which is the same that we do with all the anxiety disorders so that we're going to begin to normalize those thoughts. What it does is it makes it all so scary. We want to make it less scary. You know, the same thing like, oh my gosh, there's my weird OCD. Oh my gosh, there's an OCD thought. But it's really hard because these thoughts are so, so compelling. So compelling. This is reminding me of the children's books, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. (laughs) We talk about that one a lot. Because I think it's such a great example to teach kids about a never-ending cycle, Mm -hmm. which is what their doubt factory could be. Yes. And so those books would be helpful in explaining there's no end to this. Right. So the goal is to just the same as with all the anxiety issues that I talk about. The goal is not elimination. If you go into it trying to say, I'm not going to have these thoughts, I'm not going to have these thoughts, don't have these thoughts, don't have these thoughts, that makes the problem worse. So you really want to recognize that the thoughts are going to show up, the obsessions are going to show up, but you recognize what it is. One of the challenges that parents have is say they learn about this and so they know how to talk to it and they're recognizing when the OCD shows up. And it's the very same with the other issues. You know, you name your OCD Sally and then you your child is sort of engaging in these behaviors or you see them starting to do it. I'll give you an example. So you have a child who at bedtime has a certain ritual that they need to go through. And a very common one is that the parent needs to say, I love you a certain amount of times before they leave the room. And the child dictates that. So you have to say, I love you to me five times. So right away, we want to interrupt that pattern. So of course, the mom or dad will go in, tuck their child in, give them a smooch. I love you, honey. See you in the morning. Mommy, say it again. And if they don't know, if the parent doesn't know, then they say, I love you. They have to follow the routine. So now we want to interrupt that. We want to break that up. And even after I do all the education. I say, okay, so that's the OCD demanding that you follow the rules. OCD is a disorder where your brain makes up rules that you have to follow. And I say that to kids. So we want to break those rules. The child doesn't say, oh, you're right. That's my OCD. I'll just, you can just say, I love you to me once and that'll be fine. We wish they would say that, but it, it's so compulsive. So they say, no, no, it's not my OCD. 
OCD. Stop saying that. I don't want you to say that. Just do what I need you to do. They so, so desperately want the parents to be involved in the compulsion. It's actually called co-compulsing. And when a parent stops engaging in it, the child gets really upset. It happens with adults too. So then what happens? The parent has to ride it through. They have to say, I know this is upsetting to you. I understand how hard this is for you, but I am not going to be on team OCD or I'm not going to be on team Sally. So they have to step back and not compulse and tolerate their child's distress, just like with the other anxiety disorders. And the more they talk about it and the more that they recognize it and they acknowledge it, What I really want kids to understand is that when you stop the compulsion, when you don't do the compulsion, it feels really hard at first, and then you will experience some relief. But I got to get them there. And, you know, it's, it's hard. It takes a lot of work. And there are some kids that grab onto this thing. I can work with them for a few months, and oh my gosh, they really get it. And for some people, it's more intractable. For some kids, it'll show up in some way. It'll grab onto them. They deal with that particular episode of it. It sort of goes into remission for a while, and then maybe it shows up when they're in high school or in middle school. So it's a tricky little bugger. Yeah, it's really treatable. We know treatment works. The earlier you get on it, the better. If you are a family that has OCD, Really being able to recognize what it is and to work together, being able to talk about it openly as a family, being able to recognize it as a couple. I've written a a bunch of articles about this, particularly in the Psychotherapy Networker, about OCD in the family. And it is around, again, it is not an uncommon thing. It's not like 0.5% of people in the country have OCD. I'm just thinking if you're a parent And let's talk about that bedtime ritual with I love you. Mm -hmm. So that ritual has to start in order for it to take hold. Mm -hmm. So then the parent sort of needs to watch, are there really unnecessary rituals? When are they developmentally normal? And when are they entering another territory? Which is a good point because we know that toddlers, little kids, like rituals. They love routine, right? They like to do the same thing. And that's developmentally normal. Sort of the little red flag that shows up is that is how rigid it is and how upset your child gets if it can't happen. And oftentimes it gets longer and longer and longer. Of course, little kids, you know, you have your bedtime ritual. So we're going to brush our teeth. I'm going to tuck you in. We're going to read a story. But when you see it becoming something that has to happen or there's great distress, that's a warning sign. And when it becomes longer and longer and longer, that's a warning sign. And when you see it maybe showing up at other places, not just bedtime, but you begin to see this rigidity of things having to happen a certain way. It might not be OCD. It might just be like your kid is kind of rigid. And of course, it goes back to what we've been talking about is how do we inject flexibility into it so that then you begin to say to your children, it's fun to have a ritual at bedtime, but sometimes we can't do it. We have to be flexible about it. But when you see it becoming really intractable, when there's almost like, it's not like this fun bedtime ritual, but there's this distress and this urgency about it. Mommy, mommy, you have to say it. You have to say it. You have to say it. That's when you have to start to pay attention. And parents are pretty good at feeling that. 
you know, there's a difference between like, oh my gosh, this is our nice bedtime ritual and parents feeling like they're being held hostage by it. Because that's really what you're experiencing is you and your child are being held hostage by the OCD demands. Trying to stay ahead of it before you get there is the goal, right? Of course. But, you know, just so people know, this thing can be pretty powerful and it can just show up or, or it's been there sort of under the surface and then you've seen it like as you're in your three-year-old or your four-year-old or your five-year-old and then all of a sudden when they're seven, it grabs hold in a way. And if you have OCD, if you have a partner that has OCD, really paying attention to how you are managing it and what you are modeling for your kids and educating your kids about it too. It is really helpful to talk to kids if there is OCD in the family to talk really openly about it, just like if there's addiction in the family. The more you start talking about it, the more you start opening the conversation, the more you just make it a part of this is one of the things our family needs to discuss, the better off you'll be. So are all athletes who have those weird superstitions, are they all suffering from OCD with like the different socks they have to wear or like all of the rules about winning? Yeah. I mean, it depends. I think when I'm watching, like if I'm watching Rafael Nadal play tennis, that poor guy, right? He has so many rituals that he has to do. If you watch him, we all know he, if you don't watch tennis, he has this routine that he does before every serve. But if you watch him over on the bench during changeovers between games, he's adjusting things. He's turning his water bottles to face a certain way. He is definitely in that category. Sports are very superstitious. I remember when my kids were playing Little League. So my husband and I, we we took him to a practice. And at the end of the practice, the coach said, and he was this, you know, other, this other young dad, the coach said, oh guys, come on, make sure we don't want the bats to cross each other because that's bad luck. You always have to make sure that the bats are lined up and that none of the bats are on top of each other. And we got into the car and my husband said to my boys, just by the way, you know what coach uh, Tony was saying about the bats? That's totally crap. And we're not going to pay attention. Whether or not you play well in a baseball game, there's nothing about crossing the bats. In athletics, there is a superstitious and an obsessive part about it. And that's one of the places where it's really rewarded. So the more obsessive you are, the more ritualized you are, oftentimes the better you do. So do some of them have OCD? Probably have some of them developed that OCD, ritualistic, superstitious way of doing things because it's been supported and rewarded? Yes, And where does Tom Brady stand on all of this? He is probably, (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. Uh, (laughs) He's pretty pretty darn obsessive. So I don't know if he has OCD in other areas of his life, but he's a good example of somebody. His, His obsessiveness is rewarded. It's emulated. He feels like he can never do enough. The next time we have lunch, I'll chat with him about it. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. 
Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.